Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Midtown Schuyler Bookstore. My name is Alex Brubaker. Thank you for joining us in Harrisburg this evening. Uh, before we begin, some customary housekeeping as always. Uh, I'd like to encourage you to take an events newsletter up at the front of the cafe. We have a lot of upcoming events, um, including a notable gun act control activist on his plan to take down the NRA uh, and many others. Uh, all these events are free and open to the public, so we'd love to see you back at the Schuyler. Now it is my pleasure to introduce our speakers for today's events. Uh, we are very proud to welcome New York Times bestselling author Dee Watkins and Harrisburg's own Brandon Flood to the Schuyler. Uh, but first of all, can we give a round of applause for the brand new secretary of the Pennsylvania Board of Pardons, Brandon Flood. Give it up. Uh, I, think, I think I can speak for the bookstore when I say we're very honored to have him as part of our community here at the bookstore and in Harrisburg. Our author for the evening this evening is Dee Watkins, who is the editor-at-large for Salon. His work has been published in the New York Times, The Guardian, Rolling Stone, and other publications. He holds a master's in education from Johns Hopkins University and an MFA in creative writing from the University of Baltimore. He is currently a college professor at the University of Baltimore and founder of the Be More Writers Project. Watkins has been featured as a guest and commentator on NBC's Meet the Press, CNN's The Aaron Burnett Show, Democracy Now!, and NPR's Monday Morning, among other shows. Watkins is from and lives in East Baltimore. Jason Reynolds says of the book, in a time of blunt bladed posturing and hyperbolized impact, we speak for ourselves as a sharp gash in the psyche of America. And Ibram Kendi writes that we speak for ourselves as an amplifier of low income black voices who have their own voices and have no problem using them. Watkins dares us to listen. A huge thank you to Brandon Flood and Dee Watkins for joining us at the Scholar today. So please join me in giving them a huge Harrisburg welcome. All right, good evening, everyone. Uh, first and foremost, I want to thank you guys for coming out. I, I don't know if it's raining still or not, but, uh, you know, appreciate you uh, still supporting. And also, uh, you will also be able to participate in the dialogue as well. So just briefly, in terms of what the uh, format will be, is uh, kind of casual conversation between Professor Watkins and myself, and then we'll open it up for Q&A. So the first question I would ask or pose to you, uh, 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 Professor Watkins is, while the title We Speak for Ourselves seems rather self-explanatory, uh, I would ask you to take a moment to unpack uh, what it was that inspired you to take on this subject and, and what do you, uh, what was the intent or what should the reader take away uh, from this? So first thing I want to say, I'm, I'm going to answer the question, but this is this is like the coolest, this is one of the most beautiful <laughs> bookstores I've ever been in my life. Like this is, I've been to a lot of bookstores, like a lot of bookstores, it's, it's so nice. Like just looking at the architecture and just, just the people upstairs and they're, just, they're like chilling, you know, <laughs> like I love it, I love it here. Um, so the title came from um, the simple situation really. I, I used to, Every once in a while, I used to do the cable television. Sometimes they would call me in to speak on these shows, and it was a cool thing. You know, they, a lot of the shows are in D.C., and I live in Baltimore, so they'll send a limo to pick you up. It's like real extra. And <laughs> you get to ride it to D.C. and ride it back home. And, you know, um, and it's real cool because I'm not a rich person, so anytime a limo picks me up, it's like, oh, okay. So anyway, I go on the show, and I give my commentary, and then I'm hit it back home, and you always want to watch a little, the little clip of yourself um, once it goes, once they post it to their website, because you want to see if you look crazy or not. You know, did I make sense? Did I say um too many times? Did I say like too many times? And things like that. So this day was weird for me because when I, I looked at the clip, my lower third, which is actually like my label, my title, it didn't say D. Watkins writer. It didn't say Professor Watkins. It didn't say D. Watkins author of the forthcoming book, The B-Side. It said D. Watkins, Black Lives Matter activist. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> and, you know, I know a whole lot of people who work with Black Lives Matter. Um, I'm, you know, uh, Alicia Gosner is a, a great person. Like, Patrice, like, they're really, really nice people, but it's not fair for them to just add me to their organization. And it's not really fair for me because it's not, it's not what I do. While I have great respect for a lot of different movements and what a lot of different people do, I just don't really think it's cool to just throw everybody in the same box. Um, and I think for networks, a lot of times it's lazy. It's disrespectful, but then it's also lazy because 
while these people may be doing great work, it's, I'm on a whole you know, different end of this doing my own work, and you don't have to give me a label to, you know, for clickbait and things like that. So that's, that's kind of where the title came from. Right. No, and that's a perfect segue. I know you talked about protest in the book. Um, and for anyone, and I'm sure most of you that I know have been involved in local protests in one way, shape, or form, or another. Uh, and protests can be very nuanced. There's a lot of working parts, as you mentioned. You, sometimes you can find out at the day of the protest uh, that uh, a new organization is involved or that you're part of an organization. In the case of uh, you know, Professor Watkins, he was <laughs> a member of Black Lives Matter. Um, and I know the emphasis was on platforms. So certainly, um, you know, especially with today's media, everyone is looking to consume uh, news very conveniently. Uh, the, the, the whole tag of uh, the whole phenomenon of uh, fake news is a, a real and existing thing, as you said, certainly to see how you're being portrayed. S can you speak more to, and I think one of the quotes in the book was, uh, don't speak for me, pass the mic. Yeah, yeah, that came from, to uh, that. from Dr. Um, Sayyid Kaber, and she said, um, we don't need a voice for the voice unless you can just pass the mic. And I'm coming up, and so first, let me, let me say this. To, I have so much respect for my disruptors and people who really, really um, organize protests. I've played basketball on concrete for a long time, and I've been shot. My knees and feet are bad. So, no, I'm not, I love you, Dr. King, but I'm not walking to D.C. Like, it's just, it's just not going to happen. But it doesn't mean that that's the only way you can be effective or, or you can make change. Um, we need people inside the system. We need people to be public defenders. We need people who care about us to be prosecutors. We need people who care about us to get into politics. Like, we need people fighting on every different front. Wars are won when you have like-minded people on multiple fronts. It's not just one thing. And... I think me coming up around this time or me be just becoming like aware to all of these different organizations and activist communities around this time where blackness is being monetized, where like everybody has activists in a bio. Like uh, I interviewed, um, I was interviewing somebody at Salon and um, they were calling themselves an accidental activist because they spoke out against one thing one day and like they, they branded it and turned it into a career. But I'm like, it's people out here who are really risking their lives for people, like people who are organizing and fighting to make the lives of people better every day. How dare you disrespect their craft and what they do by just acting like it's something you can do, um, you know, one time and make some money off of it and then go do something else. Right. So my thing is um, there's space for all of these different people who are doing great things and they all need to be highlighted and we need to show love to all of them. And um, I'm not the voice <laughs> You know, when, when you when you sit on stage like this at times, like you get labeled, oh yeah, this, this is the voice of, you know, whatever. But like, I'm a, I'm a voice. I'm a right. person with a perspective, and I try to elevate the voices of others as well. No, and, and part of uh, having a, an effective voice, uh, and I know certainly in your in the case of your own career, there was a time. Now you're you're highly sought out for, uh, you know, your opinion pieces. Uh, but there was a time when you were trying to break into that. Not, no, not only, not where you try, you weren't trying to become mainstream, but you wanted to have your message uh, become mainstream. And I know uh, part of, you know, education was a big part of that. You being able to effectively communicate yourself, uh, communicate not only and through your writings, but also uh, verbally. Um, now speak to uh, the the power of education. I know this to put it in the local context here. Uh, if anyone here is from Harrisburg, certainly you know the Harrisburg school board race is, is a big one this year, which, you know, historically, really folks haven't paid that much attention to. Uh, mm -hmm. But certainly we understand uh, the power of education and certainly how that affects outcomes of our young people. So speak to how education is was important and you being able to, to kind of uh, no, not fall and become befall the same fate that many of your your colleagues uh, had, you know, or the young or the people that you grew up with, for that matter. I know you mentioned there was a, quite a few deaths, uh, and you also mentioned there were two people, at least in the book that you mentioned as adults that could not read that were illiterate as well. So speak more to how important education is. Education is everything. It's it's everything, and not just education in a general sense, but like social education, economic education, education on, you know, your history and the con and putting all those things in context to how everything is today and why these systems work the way they work. Um, for me, 
you know, I, I would like to think that, you know, I was a good student, not a great one, but coming up, I, I, was a pretty, I was a pretty solid student. I could go into a classroom, I could listen, I could take, a, you know, um, little notes or whatever, and I can pass a test, but I wasn't a reader. If my friends didn't read, no one in my school read. When I talked to my friends who went to high school around the same time I did, and I, I asked them, like, yo, what, what books did we read in school other than um, Ben Carson's autobiography? And I'm not, I'm not joking. It's called Gift of Hands. It's horrible. Like, it's, it gets to, once it gets to page 60, it's, everything's downhill. But, um, <laughs> but, but I'm asking, you know, I'm asking my friends, like, because, you know, because I've been to a lot of schools, um, hundreds of schools and prisons over the, over the past four years. And my books have brought me there. The B-Side, The Cook-Up, and now this book has brought me to all of these different schools. And a big, a, a heavy part of what I do is, is about, one, trying to get non-traditional readers like myself, you know, interested about reading. Two, getting people to fall in love with their own stories and to be really, really excited about telling their own stories. And, and, and three, having experiences with children who never met an author before. So many kids never met an author. Like you see all of these different professions, but they never consider a writer as like a job because writers aren't really pulling up on them. So so it's, 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 it's locked in, it's, 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 it's sewn into the fabric of who I am. And I've been doing this for a really long time. And just to go back to when I was coming up, I can tie my friends and my own, um, us not being able to develop as critical thinkers because we didn't read is directly connected to every mistake we ever made. Mm -hmm. And I see that. I know who I was before I became a reader. And I know um, who I was after I actually learned that, you know, my story is important. The stories of people who grew up like me or around places like mine are important. The stories of people who grew up the totally opposite are important as well. And we have a lot in common. Like you taught that you're so different from people all over the world, but at the same time, you know, and not to be too general, but reading has taught me that we all pretty much want the same things. We just have different ways of getting to them. We all want to fall in love. We all want to make our families proud. We all get excited when the appetizer comes out of the restaurant. <laughs> Everybody likes ice cream. You know what I'm saying? Like, we have all of these things in common, but yet we're taught that we're so different. And for me, reading made the world smaller, but then it also helped me really, really, really strategically assess the situation I was living in. Okay, so my school is bad, but it's bad for this reason. Police officers act a certain way in my neighborhood for this reason. Different people who don't really understand people like me or who look like me act like that because they see this on TV, that on TV, this on TV, they're not having those interactions and those experiences. So this is my world, these are the cards I dealt, and this is how I'm gonna construct a plan to navigate through this world in a way that's smart, creative, cool, fun, and meaningful. And that happened through reading. So you know when I learned that, and it didn't really strike me until um, after I wrote my first book, and I was on like a mini little book tour, and I was getting messages on Instagram from teachers at different schools, and they were telling me, like, hey, we bought a box set of um, your book for um, our school, and students are stealing them. And I said, what? They said they're stealing them. I said, wow, I don't want students to steal, but the fact that they're stealing the book is phenomenal. That's crazy. Like, nobody's stealing the crucible. You know what I'm saying? So, so... So that that lit something in that lit something inside of me. Somebody in the background like I'd steal the crucible. <laughs> so that that lit something that lit something inside of me and said, you know what? Not only do you need to work harder at creating content that young people can connect with, but you need to figure out a way to get inside these schools and interact with these people because reading changed reading changed you, so it can change them as well. And I was so I'm so excited because well, all three of my books. Um, and this has already happened with the first two. I don't know what's going to happen with this third one because it just came out. But with my first two books, I've literally done events inside, inside the jails. I've done events at Harvard University. And then I've done events inside eighth grade with eighth graders in Baltimore City Public School System. That's three completely different demographics that are all having the same conversation through their own lens. And every conversation was, a great, was great. So, you know, um, that's, that's what education is to me. And, um, and the fact that I'm a college professor and I get to bring myself into the classroom and my own experiences to the classroom is just as, as important as like the stereotypical college professor with the cardigan and the monocle and the beard and like the Birkenstocks. Like me and him, 
we we both have great things to, to bring to the table right. and when we we're both on the same campus our students are getting a real taste of what this world should be and what it should look like and it's been like a great thing no uh, absolutely agree I know in my case uh, I think you mentioned in the book uh, sister soldiers book uh, the coldest winter ever was kind of uh, very impactful for you the first book that was very impactful for me uh, was uh, the autobiography of Malcolm X mm -hmm. we talked about critical thinking a lot of people when you think of or you think of Mar uh, Malcolm X, you think of uh, radicalism uh, or a radical person. But you know, if you really peel the layers back, especially at the latter part of his life, uh, he was all about promoting thinking critically. Um, and for me, that's where, and I'm sure the reason why you're able, he's you know he still lives in Baltimore, East Baltimore, still very much in touch uh, and in tune with the area where he grew up. Same deal with me. I don't have a problem going into you know, the, the, the most seedy bar in, in the city because, you know, at one point in time, I used to say, especially in, well, I was living that street culture, if I didn't have a gun, I wouldn't go there. But whereas now I have no problem because I, I feel confident enough that I can defuse the situation or that I can think critically enough to where I can uh, neutralize whatever threats before me. So I agree with that wholeheartedly. Uh, that takes me to the next subject. Uh, it was a good segue for, you know, policy and politics. So we talked about, uh, you know, who's setting the policies on the educational side, uh, who's, can, who's passing laws, uh, who's, uh, who's enforcing what, uh, who's providing oversight for our local police department and, and the culture that they foster. Uh, you mentioned, you, you quoted one thing in the book where you said access to information is class-based. And I know you mentioned, you also mentioned in the book and something most of we are, are, us of we're aware of is the digital divide. You know, for all, all of us here may have smartphones and, and, and Wi-Fi, but for some people uh, it's, it's not a, a reality. And certainly, you know, that does dictate what information you're exposed to and what information you consume. Uh, speak further to that, to that, uh, the, the, the statement access to information is class-based. So I used to teach at this this small, tiny, for-profit college, right, where like every professor was adjunct. And I was so proud to get this job. I paid like seven, it paid me like $70 a week. But I was so proud to be a, a professor at the school loss accreditation and shut down. But at the time, at the time it had accreditation. And I was so proud to be a part of it because people who knew me from the streets and like you know, and like got a chance to watch me grow up to be this person to finish college and try to be a writer. I wasn't publishing nowhere, but to, 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 to try to, to turn my life around, even though I was struggling like crazy, were actually in the college of students doing the same thing. So the average age student was like 50. And I was like in my early 30s. And I'm teaching at this school. And sometimes, um, I, so I'm friends with people from the neighborhood where the school was. But then some of my students were also, like, they lived in the neighborhood, too. So we were all, like, we would have, like, card games sometimes. Sometimes I would just, like, pull up, and, um, and I, we would just kick it. And one night, um, we were sitting in there playing spades, and everybody in the house was fussing about or talking about, they just heard about how Barack Obama had took a, a, a selfie at Nelson Mandela's funeral. Now, mind you, the story was weeks old. So it blew my mind because it's like, yo, no, there's no Wi-Fi. Like, I, like, I've been in, like, four of these units, and none of them, nobody had, like, a cable router. And then all of the, all of the phones they had were, like, those, those flip phones. So, they didn't, so they're not texting and downloading apps and sharing memes. They're flip phones. And this is, in, you know, this is doing, like, when iPhones was out. So it's like information is really class-based. So you can't be a part of some organization that's viral on Twitter or Facebook if you don't have Twitter or Facebook. You're not getting news stories fed to you all day long if your phone doesn't get news stories fed to it all day long. So the, even information is a luxury. Knowing things is a luxury. Some of the basic things that's happening on a local level is a luxury. So um, I, I, I wrote about it. And the essay, it, it, it went crazy. Like a lot of people read it because a lot of people never really considered that perspective. And the most mind-blowing thing about the whole um, about the whole situation is the people who I wrote about in that essay never ever even heard of the essay until I brought it I bring it back down there to them and showed it to them. You know, it, it never it never came across their radar. So they're talking about it in the local newspapers. I think I did like um, this was like the first time I ever did like television as a writer, 
and it was like Huffington Post or Huffington Post Live or whatever, whoever used to run a news thing. And it's, you know, it was just, it's, it was, it's scary how, how everyday information can be like a luxury and these are things that people need to know. And um, so I wrote about that a little bit in the book and I talk about that story. And I even talk about um, how that story even pulled me, a person who was in his 30s and, 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 and working towards becoming a professional, you know, how it pulled me in parts of my own city that I didn't even know about. You know, it, it introduced me to people in my city who were doing things that could have potentially helped some of these situations. And I, you know, I, I never ever would have came across them. There's people who work for the local newspaper that was writing stories about different situations or different groups of people in our city, but not even thinking enough to take a stroll through the neighborhood to see what's going on. And that's dangerous to me because the first thing that came to my mind when I, when I got aware of that stuff is, you know, when somebody's going to dig all of this stuff up and say, you know, what were the people of Harrisburg doing 200 years ago? And they're going to have Instagram and they're going to have Twitter and they're going to have, you know, different little clips from whoever your local news is. But, you know, a lot of those stories, if they're coming from people who are writing them or who are putting them together that don't love the people and don't love the city, that's the lens that the history is going to be defined through. And that's that's dangerous. Right. Yeah, And this is a good segue. You talked about <clears throat> becoming a professional uh, and working in that space. <clears throat> meeting new people, uh, broadening your horizons professionally. Um, you mentioned one thing we talked about downstairs briefly was uh, the ability to code switch as well. You know, uh, we, we talk about the ills that affect our community, especially as, as they pertain to black and brown you know, males too. Um, and how do we get to them? And oftentimes it's people who can identify with their experiences that, that can reach them. But by the same token, you know, it, you, you kind of live this duality where you you have that mainstream success. I think you mentioned you know you you got and you got invites to President Obama's dinner. You know, uh, well, it was like a, it was a, it was a <laughs> taping of a show with like a hundred people. Didn't, I didn't get no I didn't, no one fed me. Uh, okay. Just keep it keep it a buck. I didn't get no, well, you one, get, no yeah, one fed me. You got a little bit. You got some <laughs> some access with certainly high prof, profile people and different pro, folks that are on a different end on a socioeconomic uh, uh, scale. But you're able to navigate those two worlds, and I know, you know, speaking for myself too, um, when you get access and you're in certain rooms and certain settings, you do have to. And how many here know what code switching is? First, let me ask that. Uh, all right, <laughs> that deserves a, <laughs> that. That they're that informed. If the applause for we having that much many informed people here. So for anyone who doesn't know what code switching is, it's essentially the practice of alternating uh, between two or more languages. So if I, as oh, I can speak to, I don't think I have to give a hypothetical, I'll give you a direct example. So born and raised uptown Harrisburg, certainly I can speak, I can go on 13th and, and Derry Street and be able to converse with uh, the, 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 the residents in that area. And by the same token, I can go across the river to Middletown at uh, some uh, congressperson's uh, fundraising event and also be able to, to maybe switch the way that I speak and, and be able to relate to which should mostly be about politics. So I know for you, you had some incidents when you professionally where uh, you, you saw the value of doing that and certainly benefited you professionally as well too. You know, sometimes uh, we it's okay to bring things from the past to the future with us, but speak more to code switching and, and the value of that, not only for you, but also for obviously African, black and brown males as well. So one, I'm not good at it. That's one thing. I'm not. I'm not good at it. I try, and I'm not like I. I try. Um, back when my first book came out, the publisher, um, the marketing and promo guy, who's a great guy, Bill, he's a great guy for, for what he is, <laughs> um, pulled me aside and said, "Look, I got you this big NPR interview, so you can slow it down a little bit. Sometimes you talk really fast, and all your ideas are great. They're so great. You have great ideas." But you want everybody to hear them because you speak so fast, right? And the, his boss was like, what Bill's trying to say is try to stay away from the East Baltimore vernacular, but in a non-racist way, in a non-racist <laughs> way. I'm, I'm not a racist. I march with King, everybody. So uh, <laughs> everybody did. So, um, so me, and I'm thinking like, you know what? You know, and this is and this is just come this coming in the world of publishing is not 
black friendly. You know what I'm saying? It's difficult. And you want people to hear your ideas and you want people to accept them and you want people who you can't really get a chance to have a, a sit down or a conversation with to understand where you're coming from so that we can we, you know, we can all have an idea of, of what's happening. So I got on the show and I, I, I really tried. I tried. Like I, I thought that um, I thought I was cold switching. And <laughs> so one day, so one day and, and it went good. It went good. Like the interview went really, really well. And you know, um, it was received well, and everybody told me they heard me on the radio, and but nobody said like you sounded different. Like nobody said that. So one day, I was I was I was walking down the street. Um, I was walking down the street. I, 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 I I'm pretty sure I was in D.C. I'm walking down the street in D.C., and this dude was like, "Hey, what's up, man?" And I said, and this is like I'm not used to people like recognizing me when I'm not in Baltimore. Like I'm I'm still not because people don't really know writers. So um. So he was like, hey, what's up, man? So I said, hey, what's up, man? He was like, you was on NPR the other day? And I said, I said, yeah, how you know that? He said, yo, I was like, this dude real as I don't know what. He don't cold switch or nothing. He sounded like he just crawled out of something. And I'm, I'm like, <laughs> so I was like, for real? He like, yeah, man, yeah. I said to this person, that person, that person, that person. And then he was like, yo, I, I love you, man. And he gave me like a, a hug and like all that. And I was like, yo, that's crazy that that happened to me. Um, and from that point, I was like, well, just be yourself because it's just, it is what it is. And I wrote a passage in a book about this guy who was like, he kept yelling he was from the hood. Oh, he was on a basketball court. And this is Johns Hopkins. So it's like it's a bunch of white people on the basketball court. And like, I'm one of the only black guys and he's like the other black guy. And he's mad because he's lost. Well, he's yelling like, nah, man, nah, you feel me? You know what block I'm from? And I'm like, yo, these people don't even know what you're talking about, but I'm not. I'm not saying nothing. And then one of his white friends came in and he went from like DMX to Ben Affleck in like two seconds. And I'm like, I'm like, you know, so in the book I'm writing about how corny he is. But then after I wrote that in my mind, I'm thinking like maybe, you know, what is this guy's life like? What is his like? What is he being exposed to? What kind of reality does he live in where it has to be that serious and that deep? And um. I never really thought about his perspective because I just thought he was such a clown that I never really thought about what life was like for him. And I, I try to be better about that. But the way he switched was almost scary. And it's crazy because you got to have, as a black person, it's like you almost got to have a double, a, a triple consciousness in this country. It's like you got to, you know, you, you got to be able to speak the language um, of where you come from because these are your people. This is your foundation. This is... This your grandmother. Like, your grandma don't play that. You know what I'm saying? Like, this, you got to do that. But then when you go into the world, you got to be able to understand that language of, and I'm not talking about job etiquette, and I'm not talking, I'm talking about, like, cultural, like, different cultures and how they move and how they act. When I first went to college, I dropped out of school instantly because I've never, ever, ever had white peers. Baltimore is an extremely segregated city. So when you're growing up in Baltimore, who you play basketball with is black. The schools you go to are going to be all black. There's going to be like some white police officers and some white teachers, but everybody else is black. So when I'm walking through this college campus and if I had like some ideas of what is it like to be a part of this reality or to try to assimilate into this world, maybe it would have been different, but I didn't have that coming up. So like when I first went to college and there was a bunch of white people and it's like they're eating mayonnaise and like camping and playing acoustic guitars. And I'm like, yo, what? Why is, you know, and I'm saying hello to people and they're like, and I'm like, yo, what, like, what is, what is happening out here? So, you know, I think, um, you know, again, um, a person who understands code switching, not in a simple way, but in a more complex way, because different groups of people just aren't talking to each other. So right. like, we're not really understanding how we vibe, man. The person who understands that might be able to articulate the problem with that other than promoting phoniness, if right. that makes any sense. Like, it's not about trying to be something that you're not. It's about understanding the, your American experience. Your social context is your social context. Other people have a different social context. And if we're going to, like, not fuss and fight and, you know, have these disagreements, we're going to have to understand that. And I, I think... Um, you know, I still think the dude is a clown that I wrote about, but I, I but I do feel like I should consider I should be better at considering like his perspective because um when I went to Hopkins, I was in Baltimore. I'm from Baltimore. I didn't have to make friends on campus. I went home. Uh, people I would get you know, people would like we would have like little debates in class and they would have to like make it up 
make up because they all went out to bars together. I, you know, I didn't speak to them in public. I didn't speak to my classmates in public. Like, hey, you're in my history. No, I'm not. You know, <laughs> get away from me, nerd. No, but um, no, but I didn't. I didn't have to live on campus and go through that because I got to go right back to my neighborhood and whatever. So you know. Right, and, and, and this will be uh, the, the, the final topic we'll touch on and then we'll open it up for Q&A, but it's uh, you, the conversation, you set me up good with these segues here, man, but we talked about you know, your experiences uh, are, are who, are what shape you. you know, so your experiences are maybe different from the gentleman who you mentioned at John Hopkins, and, but in, in your uh, particular uh, case, and even from the book itself, certainly without knowing uh, you personally, you mentioned, there was a lot of trauma in that book. Uh, were a lot of folks that you were either directly impacted, uh, whose deaths you were impacted directly or indirectly. Most of them, I believe, were uh, by way of gun violence. Um, so speak to, uh, and certainly, you know, anyone here from the city of Harrisburg knows the same kind of deal in, in the inner city gun violence. Uh, really isn't something that is, it, it, it is normalized now. Uh, speak to how the trauma and your, your life personally, uh, and many of those deaths that you mentioned, especially with childhood friends, have uh, not only shaped you, how, shaped you, but also how you were able to overcome, you know, the, the same fate that, that they met. So, you know, one thing I, one thing I wanna say is that we, I didn't overcome, and no one in this room, we didn't overcome. We did not overcome. Gun violence is not an inner city problem. You know, it's an American problem. Different people from all walks of, of lives are being a affected by it. And this country has a problem. Like if anyone who would say, you know, if, you, if I come to you and say, look, a whole school full of kids was shot up and you come back at me and say, you know, start talking about the Second Amendment, I'm gonna be like, do you have a heart? You know what I'm saying? And like, it's, you know, I'm, I'm not gonna lie. Um, it's, it's, it's made me, it's made me hate guns, like, and, and I only can say this because I know what it's like to have a bullet rip through my flesh and what it feels like, what the temperature is, how it burns, it hurts. I know what guns have done to people. Like, I, like I've saw it firsthand experiences. Like, I've, I've held people as their lives slipped away. It's, it's, you know, and obviously that's not what they're intended for, but, you know, it's, my fiance and I just went to a conference the other day where the guy was just breaking down intention versus outcomes. The intention is to go hunting. The intention is to protect your family. The outcome is all of these people dying who shouldn't be dead. The outcome is our children in this country are in danger. Adults are in danger. People who go to church are in danger. The safest place, what's supposed to be the safest place in the whole country is in danger. It's, da it's, it's in danger. And for me, it's like, um, you know, um, I have a whole lot of, most of my connections are with young people in schools and young people who are incarcerated to a certain extent. And I try to have these conversations about it with them. Right. I will hope that other people who have, like, um, access to people who Aren't, who, who aren't really represented in those populations, but are talking to how dangerous they are and, and what's happening, we'll talk to them. But I don't, you know, I, I, it's, 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 it's a sensitive topic for me, and it's, right. it, 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 I'm confused. Like, I don't, I don't know what's happening. Like, every time I see these things happen on television, um, somebody being shot in the neighborhood or somebody being shot as part of, like, some mass shooting thing, I don't, you know, it's... It's disheartening, and I almost wish they wouldn't report on them because it's like somebody seeing it and thinking, okay, I need to do that. I need to be the next person to get my name out there and do that. And as a result, people are being hurt. And I know it's a, it's a sticky topic that's in a tough situation because everybody's not doing that, but the results are, are, just, are just bad. And I struggle with that. Like, I struggle with that all of the time. Yeah, we're going to open it up to audience Q&A right now. So if you have a question, just raise your hand, and I'll come around to you with the mic. Oh, we covered that much? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think I have seen you or heard you uh, described as an intellectual. Do you uh, cop to that? Uh, and if so, uh, is that a good thing? And how do we spread it around more? <laughs> yeah. Um, 
that has been my title on 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 different things before. And I think um I think we spread it around just by having having conversations. Like I think that it's crazy because so I did I did an event. Um it's Fort Myers, Florida. Anybody ever been there? Fort Myers? So so I get off the airplane and um walking through the crowd, and that was my first time seeing like MAGA hats in real life. Like they were like everywhere. It was like 87 of them. And so I'm calling my um I'm calling my publicist and I'm like, am I in the right place? And she was like, no, just be yourself. They, they're gonna like you, you know? And I'm like, okay. So I get to the hotel and I check in and then um I walk over to the book festival. It was like right across the street. And then it's like another 250 MAGA hats. And it's like, I'm like, are they giving them away? Like, am I? You know, and mind you, mind you, like I like I've never saw one in real life before. Um so then I did my event, and there was a whole, a whole like it was a lot of Trump supporters in the crowd, and we had a great time. We had a great conversation. You know, I told some jokes, they told some jokes. Um, we took photos. We had a, we had a good time, and I had, I gained a new under, I gained an understanding of, of how they see the world. Do I agree with a lot of it? No, I don't. But I was able to explain why and have them think in a different way on how they saw the world. And no, I don't, I'm not Mr. Reach Across the Aisle. No, I'm not in politics. No, I've never planned on doing anything like that. But it's crazy because people really have perspective or have these ideas of who people are and what they are. But you never met a person like me in your life. You never met half of the people that you're demonizing and that you don't like. These are people that you never had a conversation with. And it's very difficult. I'm in a fortunate like situation where I get to go to these places and do these different things. And a lot of people don't. But it definitely changed my perspective because I'm like, oh, my God, Trump supporters eat food. <laughs> they like to breathe air like, I, you know, it was blowing my mind. Like, I, didn't, I didn't know that they did things like that. So it was like a learning experience for me. So I think I think it's about having but real conversations though. Sometimes people they enter conversations and they're like angry or they like already have their mind made up. Like I can't have an exchange with you if I think I know everything about you, where you come from, what your family's about, your perspective on this and that. If I think I have you figured out, then 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 I'm not really coming at you with an open heart. I'm coming at you as like an a-hole. But if I'm listening to where you're coming from, and you listening to where I'm coming from, we might disagree, but we might develop a different type of respect. And that's where the humanity piece slips in that. And, um, and you know, I try. The, the biggest thing for me is, like, when I talk to people who, who, who identify as public intellectuals or people who work in television and radio, and I tell them, like, yo, go to the jails. Like, go speak at the jail. Like, go talk to people. Don't, you can't forget about the people that's incarcerated. And this is, these are brilliant thinkers. These are talented people. These are special, gifted people. These people are... People that you need to, you need, these, these are stories that need to be told, you know, and, and sometimes they do, and they're always rewarded by it, and then sometimes they don't, and that's a part of their own reality, you know? Yes. So, were you saying Fort Myers, Florida? Is that what, yeah, Fort Myers, Florida. Florida. Okay. My question is, is Baltimore still, uh, as you described it, like segregated, black and white, and... Is it still like that? Yeah, there's a couple of areas where like different people mix and mingle, but they're like artist spots. So that's always art always has a way of like eating racism. Um, you know, it's like you know, like if you, I, I always thought if you introduce people in the KKK to finger painting, they they'll they'll put their they'll put their sheets away, you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, segregated, especially when you talk about schools. When you talk about, you know, I've, like I said, I've been to a lot of schools, and I've been to, I've been to schools in, in black neighborhoods that don't have, that don't receive the same amount of funding as schools in white neighborhoods. And those schools in black neighborhoods, they gotta, they gotta work twenty times as hard because they have to learn Shakespeare and they have to learn geometry in the blistering cold with their coats on. You know what I'm saying? Um, with a bunch of people in the classroom. Whereas some of the schools in the whiter neighborhoods that receive more funding, obviously it's tax-based, obviously it's all systemic, but they get to sit around in circles and have bottled waters and eight options to pick from whatever their lunch is going to be while everybody has an iPad. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, not just segregated in where people are living, but segregated in the resources and what people are receiving. And it's, 
it's 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 messed up. Like it's it's extremely messed up. And I think um I think um now I think that there's some young politicians coming in and mind you, I'm not gonna give them any praise until I see some results. But there's some young people who are who are seem like they identify with the problems more than some of the older politicians that we had. And it seems like they have a different proximity to the people that some of our older politicians didn't really have. So maybe we might see some changes. I don't know. I know that I have to do what I can to let people know that these that it's not it's not fair. I have to do what I can do to get books to these young people. I have to do what I got to do to be as present in many schools as possible and make sure that um, that we're pushing critical thinking. We're teaching these workshops. We're showing how important being a reader is, um, reading voraciously and being a writer and telling your own story and being proud to share that story. And regardless of who's in office, I'm not exempt from doing that type of that type of work. So um, I, I'm always going to love Baltimore. And I'm, I always think that, you know, we can always be better. But I'm always going to be a real harsh critic of policing um, of education of all of these different things that are that other people don't have to go through you know there's kids out here who can be like yo you got a problem I'm gonna call the cops and then there's kids who are like yo I'm never gonna call him you know what I'm saying and it, it shouldn't be like that you mentioned that uh, um, you weren't a reader when you were growing up uh, and the friends that you grew up with weren't readers, uh, but also reading is access to information. Can you think of a couple things you wish your teachers would have done to maybe uh, uh, promote uh, reading to you? Hey, before yeah. you answer that, too, he's a superintendent at one of our school districts, too, so it's a, re it's a rhyme and reason behind this question. So there's this guy named <laughs> D. Watkins that has these books out? No, I'm <laughs> No, when I was coming up, when I was coming up, um, when I was coming up, they, you know, there was a lot of Mark Twain and there was a lot of, um, there was, you know, there was a lot of big workbooks. And none of these things had any cultural relevance. Now, people will argue that we have to consider, we have to get our students thinking about experiences that aren't their own. I, I, I agree with that to a certain extent, but we must acknowledge that those cultural relevant experiences are relatable to somebody, <laughs> just not us. So somebody's able to get away with it, and we're not. Um, when I was a, when I was when I was in school and I, I was born in '80 and I went to school in the '90s and all that, if you would have gave me books like The Coldest One Ever that that um, we talked about earlier, and you would have gave me like um, Nathan McCall's Make Me Wanna Holler, if you would have gave if you would have gave me that in high school, or even in middle school, I would have been a reader in high school, because relatable, familiar information is not intimidating. It's not where you end at, but it's where you begin. Right. So if I get you used to reading with that type of information, now you're developing that skill. You're learning how to physically exercise and do the work. And I always try to like, you know, I frame it like this. Black people make up about, what, 13% of this country, but are underrepresented like maybe a little under 1% in literature. So our stories, they're just not out there. They're not out there. So anything you put in the book, <laughs> is like accepted as like the universal rule. So it gives you like a different type of authority. And if I'm never seeing my ideas or my culture or anything close to me in the books that I'm, I'm, I'm getting when you're teaching me that skill, I'm going to think I'm not a part of the game. You know, the little, little girls growing up today, they get a chance to see um, uh, Miss Universe and, 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 and Miss, uh, Miss Teen USA and Miss... They get to see all of them... Um, three black women hold these big high pageantry titles at the same time. These weren't realities for little girls when I was growing up. And they run in the books and they're looking at a princess and they say, oh, that's a princess, she's pretty. Oh, that's a princess, she's pretty. But none of them have a nose like mine. None of them have hair like me. None of them look like me. Am I beautiful? Before they're even supposed to be thinking about stuff like that. So it's like, it's the same thing with literature. It's, it's what it does. And I think, um, so what, what I've been doing or what has been working for some of the schools I've been working with in Baltimore is working really hard to get, and not just my book, but it's, it's a lot of books that tell Baltimore stories or that tell stories um, in general that the kids can relate to. And when they get the books, they read them in a day. We think they love, we think they hate reading, but they don't. They just haven't had anything they can connect with and, and, and really see themselves in. And when they get them, some of the, work, some of the students who are 
the quote unquote the worst students or some of the people. And it, my phone is full of text messages of teachers saying, "Oh my God, I couldn't believe you know this one kid was. I, I thought he was gonna you know throw me over the flight of stairs, but now he's reading all the books in my office." And I get these messages all of the time because it's that simple. And I guess the other thing I, I would say to that is, or the, the other big I, I, or just idea I would I would connect with that is this whole idea of how on many plantations it wasn't legal for slaves to read. After um, after Nat Turner's rebellion, it was almost banned universally. You know, so some of these plantations you can steal and keep your life, or you can try to escape and you're able to survive, or you can even attack somebody and survive. But if they caught you reading, they would kill you because they don't want you to be able to conceptualize freedom and how powerful that is, how powerful thinking is, how powerful ideas is. So we fast forward into 2019, and we have all of these kids proudly not reading, and we know that there's things out there that will help them connect to it more, and, and they just don't do it. I mean, so long story short, culturally relevant material, like material that the kids can relate to. Um, Shakespeare not clicking, pull out them J. Cole lyrics. They're just mm -hmm. as complex, if not more, and they tell great stories. You know what I'm saying? But culturally relevant material works. It gets kids reading. And you, and, and then you can do cool things. Like I was at the school Augusta Fells in Baltimore, and they used my book to cook up as me being a black guy from Baltimore, and they paired it with Frederick Douglass's, they paired it with a narrative in the life of Frederick Douglass, and the kids ate it up, and I was reading their papers, and I'm like, you know, like, I'm beyond honored, because that's one of my favorite scholars, um, thinkers, and people of all time, but the fact that they wrote these beautiful papers, breaking the two stories down, giving analysis, talking about them, and having, like, complex conversations is amazing. That was amazing to me, um, and, and, it, and, it, and it worked. Any other questions? Um, you talk a lot about, well, you talked a little bit about code switching right now, but being able to be in different spaces like jails and then Harvard and all these different places with different people and perspectives. Um, for people who look like us, sometimes our initial goal is to go into those places, and I always say infiltrate. So we go in as the mole, we get all this information, and we bring it back to the block um, in order to show people or give people access that may not ever receive that access. Um, so for you, when you are in these different spaces and you bring back information, do you find that there is resistance from our own to be able to register any type of information that you're telling them if they're in direct contrast with what you know they know from the streets? Or have you found that because you haven't um, necessarily succumbed to code switching that your authenticity makes it easier for people to receive the information that you're bringing back. Because sometimes people will receive information from people if they're keeping it real, but if they seem corny and phony, they won't receive the information. You ever read, you, did you ever read The Spook Who Sat By The Door? Oh yeah, you should read that. It's actually a good film too. That's, that's what your question made me think of. And the answer is yes and no. And this is why, and this is the cool, this is what's cool about just being like a human being. People are always going to agree with you or disagree. You know, like, it's branded as, like, it's this whole mass resistance, um, this, this love for anti-intellectualism. And it's not, it's, it's not a real thing. Uh, I'm, in the classroom, there's people who say, oh, my God, everything that Mr. Watkins says has to be true. And then there's students who are going to be like, I, I paid for this. You know what I mean? That's the same thing on the block. That's the same thing. When you're in a room full of scholars, that's the same thing. And that's that's healthy to me. Like that's it's great to me. Like I don't, I don't, I it's cool when we disagree because when we disagree, if we can do it in a civil way, we both learn. Nothing is universally accepted. Like imagine being out with like five of your friends and y'all trying to figure out where to get dinner from. You know what I mean? Everybody's I don't know what the good restaurant is in. Harrisburg, but I'm pretty sure everybody's not we'll going to... talk offline. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm sure everyone's not going to jump on the same place. One of you guys might want Jamaican food. One of you guys might want Thai food. One of you guys might just want some wings. You know what I'm saying? Like, so I, I think that resistance is good. Um, you know, I, I know people from my neighborhood who... I, you know, and maybe, maybe, maybe I could be wrong, but I feel like I'm right. But I feel like they purposely disagree with me just for the sake of disagreeing. You know how people be like, I hate to play devil's advocate. No, you don't. That's all you, that's all you play. Like, 
That's all you play is devil's advocate. So I think it's a good thing, and I, I embrace that. And you know what? We're all not going to agree, and that's cool, too. It's like it's 20 people running for president, or 22, um, 22 Democrats running for president, and most of them are supposed to be, like, progressive and, and, and have these ideas, but I'm sure, like, if we went around the room, like, all of you guys are going to like different people for different reasons if you like any of them at all, you know? <laughs> I'm still waiting for Stacey Abrams. <laughs> I'm holding out for Stacey Abrams. So, Dee, I haven't read your book yet, but um, with tomorrow being Mother's Day, I'm just curious, is, uh, does your book speak specifically to motherhood or uh, black motherhood and the challenges of it? Um, so I, I, I try my best to, to, to show love to like um, women who I came across and women who are doing great things, but I don't try to speak on what motherhood is because I'm a, I'm a dude, you know what I'm saying? Like I, I, th I feel like, like, you know, it's like Britney Coopers and, you know, um, Roxanne Gays and all types of, of people out there that capture that experience in a way I couldn't dream about capturing it. So I just, like, I, I, follow, I, follow, I follow that league. Um, it's crazy because, and this is like another reason why the book is titled We Speak For Ourselves. There's a publication, I ain't gonna call them out, but they was asking me about a certain issue and can I kind of focus on like what the black women or get the black women perspective for this issue? And I'm like, won't you just hire a black woman? I can write about something else, it's Nikes or, you know what I'm saying? It's like poor schools, like <laughs> there's so many other things I can write about. You can get a woman to do it, and there's a whole lot of brilliant, talented the women writers out there that can really get out there and knock the article out the park. So why would you even be disrespectful and ask me to try to be something that I'm not? That's it's not fair. We have time for maybe one more question. Yes, over here. Uh, you've mentioned a couple times tonight um, basketball. Uh, I played basketball in high school and in college, and I feel like my worldview a lot of times is through the lens of, of playing basketball and playing sports. How much, if at all, has playing basketball or playing sports shaped uh, your work and, and what you've done? I think that, I think that um, playing basketball has helped me being comfortable at being competitive. Um, but I think it also um, was like another gateway for me to just meet different types of people and understand that my experience is not my own. You know, um, a lot of big lessons, lessons I learned in dealing with um, different cultures, traveling, homophobia, all of these, I learned all of these lessons through basketball, like through just being at different parks and meeting different types of people and understanding different realities. So the game has definitely um, helped me out in understanding the world through a larger lens but it's just hurt me as far as like how my limbs feel. <laughs> but it's all good though. I mean, you know, you, when you get older, you're supposed to deteriorate to a certain extent. I mean, I feel like it. I, I used to, you know, I used to be fast. <laughs> now I'm not that fast. I used we to park far away in parking lots. <laughs> now I park, like, is anybody door? <laughs> Can we give a round of applause for D. Watkins and Brandon? Thank you. Thank you, man. Thank you for joining us.